Good morning. We read in Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night with the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you've done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. This is what we're here to celebrate this morning. This is a worship service to the Lord. We remember what he's done. We rejoice in what he's done. So as we begin our service this morning, uh, just a couple announcements uh, if you have your bulletin. Uh, First of all, I want to remind you, if you don't already know, that our brother Bill Clow passed away this past Thursday, and his service will be this afternoon here at the church at 2 p.m., and then graveside interment at uh, Edgewood uh, after that service. So please come show your support for the Clow family. Be uh, be in prayer for them as well, that they would um, feel the Lord's comfort during this time. Uh, Second of all, in your bulletin, you might find, hopefully we'll find, this half sheet that says Church Servant Questionnaire. Uh, And this is from the nominating committee. We're gearing up for a new year starting in September time frame. And so uh, we're looking for servants, people who are willing to to serve the church, do the work of ministry like Ephesians says. And so um, if you have been considering uh, being involved in one of these ministries listed on the back or if you've been considering what way the Lord would have you serve, um, go ahead and fill out that questionnaire or get in touch with somebody on the nominating committee, which you voted on last week. And um, as, as the offering plates come by, you can drop this sheet in there, or you can bring it to the church office during the week, or you can hand it to any nominating committee member, and they'll get it into the right So fill that out, and then return it as soon as possible, if you will. Uh, also in your bulletin, you'll see this flyer for the uh, family event at Colerain Beach. Now, uh, I've heard that the river is green, uh, which I'm told means you're not supposed to swim in it. Uh, I'm going to believe that, and so uh, just stay tuned for more details. Uh, a, a decision will be made about that later in the week um, if things change or if things stay the same. Just stay tuned, but let Caroline know if you plan on coming. That way we can, uh, we can make sure we have uh, logistics worked out for that. Uh, Last, if you are a guest with us this morning, we really are glad that you're here. We just ask uh, that if you look on the pew in front of you, you'll see a little card. One side says, uh, welcome. The other side says, let's talk. We just ask that you'd fill that out and then drop it in the offering plates as it comes by in a few moments. Um, Let us hear from you. Let us know that you are worshiping with us and uh, if we can pray for you in any way. So as we begin our service, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we know that it's good to give thanks to you and to sing your praises. We read that in your word, but we also experience that in our lives, that we have so much to be thankful for. So many things that you're doing in our lives uh, that we don't even recognize. You're always doing 10,000 things that we don't know about. And we see the fruit of that sometimes, but Lord, we know that at the end of our lives, when we're with you in glory, we're going to look back and we're going to see your faithfulness time and time again every single day of our lives. And so this morning... I just pray that you would bring to mind ways that you have provided, uh, but more importantly, bring to mind what that tells us about you, how you love us and care for us, and how you are all-knowing and all-wise. So this is your time. We give this over to you, and I pray that you would lead us into deeper fellowship with you this morning and with each other. It's in Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Let's take a moment to say hello to each other, and then we're all going to sing our praise hymns together. So please stand. Your 
Spirit speaks to me with my whole heart I'll agree and my answer will be yes Lord yes I'll say yes Lord yes to your will and to your way I'll say yes Lord yes I will trust you and obey when your Spirit speaks to me with my whole heart I'll agree and my answer will be yes Lord yes To Thee willingly yielded I come. Show the path that I must walk, compel me then to go. If I stray, bring back the light of day, for here am I, send me, I pray. Here am I, send me, here my Lord, send me. Precious Holy Spirit, come, fill me anew. Give me wisdom, send me strength, grant that I may be a mirror of your never-ending love. For here am I, send me, I pray. down kids thank you how are y'all doing thank you yep it's mine you know what this represents? So this medal is a reminder of something that is happening in the world today. It just started this week. Does anybody know what it is? Do you know? Has anybody heard of the Olympics? Yeah, so the Olympics started this week. You know what the Olympics is? Yeah, you do different games. So you got people from all over the world competing in different, from different countries, and they're competing in different games. Like they're, they're competing in soccer, swimming, diving, gymnastics, baseball, track. Um, I play soccer. I'm going to play soccer this fall. Oh, you're going to play soccer this fall. You might be in the Olympics one day. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Oh, okay. So the men and women that's competing in the Olympics, they train very hard in hopes that they will win a medal, you know, a medal like this. This is a medal I got way back in high school. That was a long time ago. Well, I hope you do too. If you, keep, if you practice hard and you train hard, you might. Oh. So in each event, only one team or one person can win the top prize. All of the athletes work very hard, but there can only be one winner. So what does the Bible say about the Olympics? Well, it doesn't really say the Olympics, but here's a little something that it tells you. The scripture says from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
The Bible says that life is similar to the games such as the Olympics. The Bible says that everyone who competes in the games goes into very strict training and works very hard to win a prize. Some people compete in the game of life for personal gain. Perhaps they do it so they can become famous or be very popular or make a lot of money. The Bible says their prize will not last. Some people compete in the game of life and work very hard because they love Jesus and want to bring honor to him. The Bible tells us that they win a prize that lasts forever. In the Olympic Games, there can only be one winner, but in the game of life, we can all be winners if we live for Jesus. Want to hear that again? In the Olympic Games, there can only be one winner, but in the game of life, we can all be winners if we live for Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, help us to play the game of life in such a way that will bring honor to you. Help us to remember that the victory comes from you, not from ourselves. In your name I pray. Amen. Our offertory hymn is His Mercy is More. Uh, You'll remember this song from last week. We sang it during our praise hymns. So uh, please stand and we'll sing His Mercy is More. What love could remember No wrongs we have done Omniscient, all-knowing He counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's bow together. Father, we pray that as we give, as we return just a portion of what you've given to us, we pray that you would align our heart with yours. Lord, align our purpose as a church and as individuals with yours to make disciples of all nations, to reach all peoples with the mercy in Christ. And so as we give to you, Lord, this is our worship. We give with a thankful heart. We give with a cheerful heart because we know that all things are yours anyway, that you don't need our resources, but it's our blessing, it's our joy to give them to you for kingdom purposes. And so we pray that you would take them, that you'd be honored by them, and that you'd use them for your glory, for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Continuing on in our series through the books of Jonah and then into Nahum. We've got two more weeks, including this week in Jonah, and then we'll move on to Nahum. Uh, Really excited about that because, like I said before, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on Nahum, so now you won't be able to say the same thing. Uh, But Jonah chapter 3 is where we are. Uh, Last year for Christmas, Leslie gave me in in my stocking this little tool. I know you can't see it, um, but it's it's a little credit card-sized tool, and it's got all sorts of tools in it. It's got different size hex wrenches. It's got a five-centimeter ruler. It's got a little right angle, a can opener, a bottle opener, a nail puller, a slide edge, a little flathead screwdriver, a peeler, um, a cable peeler, a letter box puller, all that to say. It's got a ton of tools in this one little tool, right? It sort of reminds you of the, uh, the Swiss Army knife. Everybody recognizes the little red casing of the Swiss Army knife uh, developed really in the 1800s and hasn't changed too much since then. Um, but I remember as a kid, I had a Swiss Army knife, and it was one of those big ones. And I remember thinking of all the scenarios I could get into that I'd find myself needing the knife, you know, camping or out in the woods or something like that. My imagination would run wild. And, you know, looking at all the tools on the knife, I really couldn't envision myself in a situation where I would just absolutely need a corkscrew. But, you know, that's the point, right? The knife is supposed to be able to do all sorts of different things in whatever situation you find yourself in. Everything's in this one tool. Now, we know from God's Word that God's Word is much the same way. Not only is it sharper than any two-edged sword, not only is it living and active, but... God's Word tells us that it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God's Word is incredibly useful in all sorts of different situations, just like the Swiss Army knife. But a lot of times, that's, that's where we leave it. We can do all sorts of things with God's Word. It's useful to us. We can do things. But we never really make the transition to what does God do with His Word. It's our Swiss Army knife, but it's also God's tool of choice. God himself uses his word in a variety of ways, and we see this all throughout Scripture. And so in Jonah, this book that deals largely with God's mercy, his undeserved mercy toward people who deserve judgment, we have to understand the connection between the Swiss Army knife of God's word and his mercy, because there is a deep connection there that we see. And so last week, we discussed that even though Jonah disobeyed God, when he finally called out to God for mercy from the bottom of the sea, when he finally called out to God for mercy, God saved him. Jonah deserved to die for his rebellion. The Lord sent this storm. Jonah is drowning to the bottom of the sea. He goes down to what he thinks is Sheol itself with its bars closing around him, and he calls out to God in his temple, and God shows mercy, and he sends the fish. The fish swallows Jonah. And so we see the last verse of chapter 2. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And that's been the source of all sorts of pop culture references, even movies. You know, this, we, we love to talk about this because it's God's mercy. Right? God, God causes a fish to vomit up Jonah onto dry land. Now, we don't know how much time passes between chapters 2 and 3. It could be immediately that, that the fish vomits Jonah out, and then God says, hey, right now, go to Nineveh. It could be that Jonah had a little bit of time to go home and shower, maybe use some deodorant, because being in the fish for three days probably didn't smell so great. But in the end, it really doesn't matter how long between when Jonah is out of the fish and when Jonah goes to Nineveh, because we see that ultimately Jonah, he's just a servant of God's Word. He's a recipient of God's Word, And then he's a servant to God's word. He's delivering the word to people. So in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah finally obeys God's word and proclaims it to Nineveh so that they also can repent and be spared. Just like Jonah disobeyed God's word, he finally listened to God's word and he, he received God's mercy, he is now tasked with doing this same thing to Nineveh. And the wonderful thing about the account of Jonah in the Bible is that whenever we read it, We should see ourselves both in Jonah and in the people of Nineveh. We are, at the same time, the recipients and the messengers of God's mercy. 
We are ambassadors of reconciliation, is what the New Testament calls us. We have been reconciled, so we seek to reconcile others. And so from Jonah 3, we'll see that we should submit to and proclaim God's powerful word so that we all can experience his mercy. We submit to God's word, and then we proclaim that same word to others so that they can experience the same mercy that we have experienced. So Jonah chapter 3. Jonah is out of the fish at this point. Starting in verse 1 of Jonah 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for your word. As we, as we sit and as we discuss, as we learn, as we meditate on what it actually means that you've given us your word, I pray that you would plunge it to the de depths of our hearts. Lord, that you would use it as a spotlight to search out the deepest, darkest areas of our hearts that we don't even know about. Lord, show to us any hidden sins that we have. Show to us any hidden faults. Bring us to a deeper faith and a deeper knowledge of who you are. And in doing that, help us to understand who we are. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first two verses of chapter 3 start just like the book of Jonah started. It's, it's almost a mirror image of how the book started. It says, the word of the Lord, remember, if it's in all caps but lower, it's, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you pronounce that, that's God's covenant name. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and then God tells him what to do from there. Now, keep in mind, this is after Jonah has run from God. This is after God sent a storm onto the sea and after Jonah is plunging to the bottom of the ocean and after Jonah calls out to God for mercy and after God sends a fish to deliver Jonah and after God sends Jonah out of the fish. This is after God has done all of this for Jonah and he tells him, go. Right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. What mercy that God would give Jonah a second chance that the word of the Lord would come again to Jonah when the first time it came, Jonah disobeyed it and he spurned it. What mercy that God would again send his word to his servant. God shows his mercy by sending his word. It's, it's that simple. This was a second chance. And I think when we read Jonah or any other account in the Bible, I think a lot of times we tend to naturally think, well, of course, of course God gave him a second chance. Of course he did. But when we pause and we think throughout Scripture, there really shouldn't be any of course about a second chance. It's not automatic. A second chance isn't deserved. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron, uh, you know, Moses and Aaron, Aaron's sons, uh, when they offer strange fire, an in, in unauthorized offering on the altar, God strikes them dead. When Uzzah reaches out his hand because they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant on this cart carried by oxen, and they hit a rough patch. The, the Ark of the Covenant starts to tip over. Uzzah reaches out his hand to keep it from touching the dirty ground. What happens when he touches the Ark? God strikes him dead. Into the New Testament, when Ananias and Sapphira, when they lie to the church, when they lie to the Holy Spirit about their land and about their money, God strikes him dead. Right? There is no of course when it comes to second chances. We can't presume on them. We can't assume them. 
So the very fact that God sends his word to Jonah a second time is sheer mercy. Because whenever we do get a second chance, we have to recognize what's expected of us. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? What was Jonah's second chance for? Well, it was to get it right this time. What mercy that God sends him his word again. And what does God tell him to do? The same thing it told him the first time. Go to Nineveh, deliver God's word. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Do what you should have done the first time when you ran the opposite direction, and then I showed you mercy. Preach this message to Nineveh. And again, we know the story. From the time we're kids, we know what happens to Nineveh. And we know our God. He's a God of mercy. And so this warning against Nineveh that Jonah's supposed to deliver, even the warning itself has tones of mercy because in this message that Jonah gives in verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In this message, which seems to be doom and gloom and judgment, which it is, in it is implied unless, dot, dot, dot. Yet, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, parentheses, unless, dot, dot, dot. Because this is who our God is. He's a God of mercy. So even in sending this word of warning and judgment to Nineveh, God is showing mercy. And in fact, in the phrasing in verse 4, it actually could be, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be turned upside down, overthrown, turned upside down. And we know that that's actually what happened. We know that Nineveh turns from their sins, and the city is turned upside down because they repented. The whole city changes. So they really do respond to God's mercy And the city is turned upside down. And so God sends them this word of warning, but that itself is mercy. The very fact that God speaks to people is mercy. God did not, God does not have to reveal himself to us. In fact, God had and has every right to do what deists believe he does. Our deists believe that God sort of created everything, he wound up the clock, or he wound up the wind-up toy, and then he just stepped back and let go. That yes, he's a creator God, but that's all the involvement that he had in his creation. Did God have a right to do that? Absolutely. God has a right to do whatever he wants. Especially after Genesis chapter 3, when God gave Adam and Eve his word, his command, and he said, don't eat from this tree in the garden, and they disobeyed. God had every right to say, okay, you didn't listen to that word. I'm not going to give you any more words. Because time and time again in the Bible, we see one of the biggest judgments God has on people is that he's going to withhold his word. And yet he doesn't. God has every right to withhold his word from us, to not reveal himself to us. But he doesn't. He gives us his word. He gives us his commands. He introduces himself to us. What kind of a merciful God would continually endure being rebelled against, spat upon, insulted? What kind of a merciful God, despite all of this, would reveal himself and his goodness to us? And yet he has. He's given us his word by which we know who he is, by which we know his heart, and by which we know what he expects of us. That in itself is mercy, that he has introduced himself to us. So by the very fact that God sends his word to Jonah, and he sends his word to Nineveh, he's showing unimaginable mercy. And so the rest of this chapter deals with how Nineveh responds to this word of God. What do they do when Jonah proclaims the word of God? But what does Jonah do first? Before we deal with Nineveh, let's deal with Jonah. Because the word came to him, just like last time. Chapter 1, the Lord said, Arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Here in chapter 3, it says, uh, The Lord said, Arise, go to Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. You track the difference? Chapter 1, God said, but Jonah did. Chapter 3, God said, so Jonah did. Whenever God says to do something, there's either going to be a but or a so. Let's live our lives in a manner that when somebody recounts our life, at the end of our lives, when somebody is giving our eulogy, let's live our lives in a way that they'll say, he did so what God said. God told him so he did more than he, they say God told but he did. Let's live our lives that there's more so's than but's. And so Jonah arose 
He went to Nineveh and he proclaimed his message. This exceedingly great city, a three days walk is how the Bible describes it. And and so maybe the simplest way to understand this is that he spent a day walking through the outskirts, walking through the suburbs into the city, and then a day preaching in the city, and then a day walking back. There's one, there's many ways to understand it, but that's one of them, to understand this three-day journey and this one-day journey that it talks about. And so how do the people respond to Jonah's preaching? Well, verse 5, one of the most massive understatements, one of the most uncelebrated statements in all of Scripture. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. The Word of God led them to believe in God. Jonah had a very simple message here. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We don't know if that's sort of the summary of what he was teaching or if that's literally all he said or if he had conversations with people to explain 40 days and the city will be overthrown, but here's what God wants you to do. We don't know exactly how that looked, but the point is that the message was simple. Yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown. And because of that, people believed in God. It's worth noting that it doesn't merely say they believed God. It's not just that they believed the statement Jonah made on behalf of God. It's that they believed it in a way that they trusted in God. They believed it enough that it affected how they acted, as we'll see in a moment. Does anybody like roller coasters? Bush Gardens, King's Dominion, roller coasters? All right. I'm seeing no hands, but that's okay. All right. Um, well, if you know, if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know there's a difference between you know, getting the spec list of what type of steel they used, of what engineering they used, of who designed the roller coaster. There's a difference between seeing all the logistics of the roller coaster and saying, yeah, yeah, that'll hold me, versus actually getting on the roller coaster. Same way with a boat. There's a difference between looking at all the specs of a boat and saying, yeah, yeah, that's a good boat. Yeah, that, that'll survive this storm. And then actually getting on the boat. There's a huge difference there. But this is what we're talking about. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They got on the roller coaster. They got on the boat. Why, though? What brought them to this point? Well, uh, a little bit of the historic background. Um, In the Assyrian Empire, which is where Nineveh was, it was a city of the Assyrian Empire, there was a famine in 765 B.C., 765 B.C., and it either lasted until 759 B.C. or it happened again in 759 B.C. So there, it was either one long famine or two famines within just a few years. In 763 B.C., there was a solar eclipse. And during that time, among pagan, pagan religions, anything to do with the sun, the moon, the stars, anything up in the sky was a huge deal. It was often seen as an omen that something big was about to happen. Um, Assyria... That, that empire was also in military danger from their neighbors to the north. There were riots and rebellions in the Assyrian Empire until about 758 B.C. There were several big floods in the Assyrian Empire. So famine, flood, solar eclipse, riots, rebellions. Are we talking about America? Uh, depending on when Jonah actually came on the scene in the 700s, this was at least partially the background for his arrival. At least some of this was the background for his arrival. Not to mention, word would have gotten around that this guy was swallowed by a big fish, but he lived to tell about it. And then depending on how long between when he got out of the fish and then when he came into the city, scholars have suggested that his skin might have been bleached from the gastric fishes, uh, the gastric juices of the fish, and it goes without saying that he stunk to high heaven. All right, so he's walking into the city, and people at least know, if not smell, that he's been inside of a fish. So people are going, uh, again, a pagan people who worship these, these fish gods, they would have seen that as a huge deal. All of this would have set the stage for Jonah's arrival, but none of this is what actually led to the people's turning. None of that is what made the people call on God. It may have alarmed them. It may have caused them to perk up their ears, but what actually led them to belief in God? What led them to call on God? God's word. The message of warning that he sent through his servant Jonah. Just like the sailors in chapter 1, they could be terrified, they could be alarmed at what was going on, but they needed someone to help them understand who was behind it. And so here Jonah is with a simple message. Yet 40 days, it says they believed in God. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God is the tool used by God to create faith in God. Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth, 
and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We mentioned that we have the same task as Jonah. We have the same task in a a lot of different ways, even the setting as Jonah, to proclaim God's word to a sinful and wicked world. And so often we wonder if we have the right words, if we have the right arguments, if we can be convincing enough, if we're going to have all the answers. You know, I don't want to share about Jesus because what if they ask this question that I don't know? I don't want to share about Jesus because I'll just push them away farther. I'm going to make things worse. But just like Jonah, all we need is the Word of God. That's all we have to do. It will not return to him void because when we share his Word, we're not the ones with the power. God is with his Word. This is why we make such a big deal about basing everything we believe and do on the Word of God. This is why I won't preach anything but the Bible, because I've got nothing good to say apart from the Bible, because nothing apart from God's Word has any power. This is why in our articles of faith that we confess as a church, as a church, it says, we believe the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end and truth, without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. That's in our Constitution that we believe that. This is why we focus everything on God's Word, because the Word of God is His revelation to us, how He introduces Himself to us, how He works in us. It is enough for what God does. We see that God's Word led the people to believe in God. But it wasn't just a head knowledge. It wasn't just that they believed God. No, it affected their lives. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What are they doing here? Well, because they now believed in God, they're grieving their sins. Because the Word of God led people to believe in God, it led people to grieve their sins. They sit in sackcloth. It's a coarse material, often made of goat's hair, but it's what prisoners, poor individuals, slaves would wear. And so somebody would wear this if they were grieving because they would associate themselves with with being nothing, with being the lowest of the low, absolutely humbling themselves. Job wears this, if you remember, in the book of Job. And they fast. Again, uh, another sign of mourning or grieving, great distress, forsaking physical food. But it says that even the king does this. Verse 6, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. When the word reached him, what word? Well, the same word that Jonah proclaimed, the word of God. The king arose, he took off his kingly robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat on the ashes. The word of God is powerful enough to bring even the most wicked and powerful king to his knees. And he orders a fast throughout the whole city. Even the animals couldn't eat or drink, which was common for animals to be involved in religious rituals for them. But the king himself believed in God. The wicked king of a wicked city, of a wicked empire, believed in God. I want you to imagine for a second that Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, was reached by the word of God, and he grieved over his sins. Imagine that Bashar al-Assad, the the president of Syria, was convicted in his heart of his sinfulness. Imagine that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, truly realized his sinfulness before God. It it seems like an impossibility. It, It seems so far out there that we couldn't even consider. We couldn't imagine what that would look like for their nations and for the world. What would that look like? But why couldn't it happen? Why, why don't we pray for this? Why don't we pray for, for not only our leaders in America, but why don't we pray for, for foreign leaders who are oppressing their people, foreign leaders who hate God and hate God with their actions too? Why don't we pray for them? 
We've just seen in chapter 2 that nobody is too far gone for God to reach them. We're seeing that the word of God is powerful, that even a simple message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Even a simple message can bring people to belief in God. Revival starts with the word of God. We see God for who he is because he tells us who he is. And so we pray that we would see him for who he is from his word. Because when we truly see God for who he is, when we believe him to be who he says he is, who he describes himself to be in his word, then we will see our sinfulness. And even as believers, this is what the word of God does. Whether you've been a believer for five minutes or five decades or a century, this is what the word of God does. As we read his word more, we understand him more. We understand what he loves and what he hates. And as we understand him more, we start to recognize different sins in our life, things that keep us from deeper fellowship with him, things that grieve him, and our hearts grow to look like his. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We grieve what he grieves. Why? Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grow the people of God. And so we take this same Word and we proclaim it, just like Jonah, to those who are far from God. But like I said, we can't create belief. We can't create grief over sin. You can tell someone all you want that what they're doing is sin, but until the Spirit of God grips their heart with the Word of God, they'll never truly grieve it. They won't recognize it. You can say, well, the Bible says this is sin, but unless they believe the Bible, it's not going to matter to them. That doesn't mean you stop saying the Bible says this is sin lovingly. We're still faithful to our task, just like Jonah was. So all we're responsible for doing is faithfully proclaiming the word. God used his word, proclaimed by Jonah, to lead people to believe in him, to cause them to grieve their sin, and then to turn to God. The king's proclamation here said to let men call on God earnestly. Cry out with your voice to God. For what? That each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Every man had a responsibility for himself. They've encountered the word of the living God who cannot look upon sin, and it becomes clear to them what they must do. They've encountered a holy God who is about to judge and destroy their city, and it's clear what they must do. Stop doing evil. It's that simple. But here's what's interesting. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. That's what the king says. Well, where have we heard that before? In chapter 1, from the captain. When the storm is raging and all the sailors are terrified and they're trying to figure out what to do, how to be safe in this storm, the captain goes down to Jonah and he says, Jonah, who's sleeping, he says, Jonah, get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So we have the captain doing Jonah's job. We have Jonah finally doing Jonah's job. And now we have the king doing Jonah's job. Wake up, call on your God. Maybe he'll show us mercy. This is the whole reason for Jonah's going to Nineveh. Tell the people of their certain destruction with the implied unless. But in both of these situations, in the captain in chapter 1 and then here in chapter 3 with the king, it's perhaps your God will be concerned. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Do this, turn from your sins, call out to God, because maybe, just maybe, God will have mercy on us. Maybe if we turn away from our sins, God will turn away his wrath from us. Well, friends, I have good news for us this morning. If we turn from our sins and if we call on the Lord, there is no maybe or perhaps for us. God's own word tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has promised that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus for mercy will receive it. Why? Because, you know, our, our turning away from sin is never truly enough. Even when we decide, you know what, I don't want to sin anymore, and we start trying to work in our own power to turn away from sin, we can't fully escape our own sin on our own. Even our repentance needs repenting of. So we need a substitute, someone who could turn away from sin for us. Not to mention the fact that we've already sinned. If you steal a car and you plow it into a building 
and to destroy the building, you know, you're going to get arrested, hopefully. But you go to prison, you stand before the judge, the judge says, all right, do you promise not to steal any more cars and plow them into any more buildings? Yeah, I promise. Okay, you're free to go. No, what kind of a good judge would just let it go like that? A judge has an obligation to uphold justice. So even if we say, God, I'm not going to sin anymore, which we can't do on our own anyway, but even if we say, God, I'm not going to sin anymore, the sin that we've already done has to be accounted for. Something has to be done with it. So as a good judge, God can't just let sin go unpunished. There has to be justice. And so the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, who perfectly turned from sin his whole life, was crucified on a cross. And while he's dying on the cross, he took every ounce of wrath that you or I deserve. Anyone who calls on him for mercy, he took on the wrath that they deserve for their sins. He absorbed the fullness of God's anger toward their sins, and he died in our place. And so now, when we turn from our sins, we can be confident that the Lord will show mercy. Why? Because his mercy toward us depends entirely on Jesus' work on the cross. God can spare us because he did not spare his son. God's mercy toward us is as sufficient, as sure as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus' sacrifice was enough, that he did take enough of God's wrath toward our sin, that he did satisfy the demands of justice. How do we know that? Well, because on the third day after his death, he walked out of the tomb never to die again. And so now, when we call on the Lord for mercy, we are confident. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is our confidence in the Lord's mercy. There's no maybe. There's no who knows. It may be. It's definitive. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But just like the people of Nineveh, truly calling on the Lord involves more than just saying words. It's more than just crying out with our voice. It involves letting the Spirit of God plunge the Word of God to the very depths of our hearts so that He might change them. It's not just a turning with our mouths. The people of Nineveh, they were supposed to get rid of any evil, any violence that they themselves individually and as a group that they were doing. Words wouldn't be enough in this case. God doesn't respond to empty words of confession, which don't have any intention of change. This was Israel's problem throughout their history, but especially in the book of Isaiah. If you read through the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 1, God says, Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? I hate your sacrifices. I hate your feasts. I hate your new moons. I hate your offerings. Why? Because they're doing all of this with their mouths, just with the outside, and yet in their hearts they are loving idols and they're loving sin. They're not turning from their sin. It's just calling out with their voice. If you were to cheat on your wife, which hypothetical, not a suggestion. If you were to cheat on your wife and your wife found out and then you were to come home one day and say, you know what, honey, I'm, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me with your arms still wrapped around your mistress. Things probably not going to go too well for you, okay? Just, again, not a suggestion, just a hypothetical, right? Because that's not a sincere apology. If you were truly sorry, you'd stop doing it. It's this idea in the Bible of repentance, that you don't just feel bad, you don't just say sorry, you change. You do an about face, a 180. You're going this way, and you turn the other way. The Spirit of God does this in our hearts by means of the Word of God. Yes, it's true that 1 John tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's promised to us. But 1 John also goes on to say that the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Hebrews 10.26 says that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. So it's not just that the people of Nineveh's hearts were changed about their sin, or their minds were changed about their sin, it's that their lives were, their hearts were changed. In turning to God and calling on God, there is necessarily a turning away from evil, a turning away from sin, which is anti-God. You can't raise your hand to God for mercy and still hold tight to your sin with the other. As Christians, our turning from sin to God is proof that we actually do know and actually do love God. 
It's proof that our hearts have actually been changed, that we've been born again. And so the people of Nineveh, they call out with their mouths and they prove it with their lives. And what happens? Verse 10, then the Lord, oh, sorry, wrong, wrong chapter. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity. Then God saw their what? He saw their deeds. He saw their works. He saw what they did. Now, let's be very clear. In doing this, they weren't deserving God's mercy. They still deserve to die. They still deserve to be destroyed. But God in his mercy saw how they responded to his word, and he chose to show them mercy. He saw their deeds. He saw that it wasn't just lip service. They meant what they said, and so he relented. God shows mercy when people respond to his word. Hell is a very real place. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. It's an unimaginably horrible place under the judgment of God, but it is a just place. A place that we each deserve. A place where God pours out his just wrath toward rebels for all eternity. If you break the temporary law of a temporary government, you receive a temporary punishment. If you break the eternal law of an eternal God, receive eternal punishment. This is the reality of Scripture. And the question people always raise is, how could a loving God do this? But the real question we should be asking is, how could a just God be willing to show mercy to such wicked and vile people like me? Nineveh deserved to be smited Smote, smitten, whatever the past tense is. That's what they deserved. They deserved to be destroyed. They were wicked. They were despicable. A wicked city of a wicked empire. The fact that God even sent word to them by Jonah, warning them of their destruction, was mercy enough. He told them what was coming. That alone was mercy. But that he spared them when they responded in faith. How unimaginable. And the reality is that we are no better than Nineveh. We are no more deserving of God's mercy than these people. Like we've said, if you do deserve it, then it's no longer mercy. So the mere fact that God has sent his word to us is mercy. But what he does by his word in us to lead us to faith, to point out and cause us to grieve our sin, to tell us how we can call on him for salvation, how deep is his mercy. You know, in, in Jesus' day, he told the Pharisees that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. If the people of Nineveh responded to such a rebellious, fickle prophet like Jonah, how much more should we respond to the Son of God? So the question for us this morning is how will we respond? How will we respond to God's word? How he reveals himself in his word, his expectations for us in his word. So the first question that we have to wrestle with is are we regularly digesting his word? Are we reading his word? Are we reading it daily? Are we meditating on it? Are we studying it? Because if we truly believe this book is what we think it is, there are huge implications. This is how God grows us. This is how God shows us who he is. This is how we grow in intimacy with God. Are we reading it like we should? And in response, are, will we believe in God? Will you trust him? Will you get on the roller coaster? Will you get on the boat? Will you trust in God? Not just believe God. Will you believe in God? Will it shape your life? Will you grieve your sin? When's the last time you truly grieved over your sin? We all have sins to grieve about. You know, the Puritans, they would regularly pray to be broken over their sin. They would pray that God would break their hearts over their sin. Even David, in God's word, says, Reveal to me any hidden faults. We will never reach the point where we are sinless in this lifetime. So we will always have sin to grieve. When's the last time we grieved over our sin? 
Are we looking for areas we're not fully in line with God's desire for our lives? Are we sensitive to what the Spirit is telling us about the condition of our hearts and our souls? Will you call on God for mercy, not just with your mouth, but with your life? Have you forsaken sin to follow Him? Because if not, then you haven't really called on God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Finally, are we going to share God's Word? Like we read earlier, Matthew 28, this is the task that God has given his people. Go and make disciples of all nations. No exceptions. It's a simple message that we're tasked with proclaiming. That's the beauty of it. It starts with bad news. Destruction is coming. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. We tell people, judgment is coming for sin. But it ends with gloriously good news. There is hope for mercy in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you for your mercy. I pray that as we read and study your word as a body and as individuals, you would lead us to a a deeper knowledge of you. And Lord, we know that the more intimately and the more deeply we know you, we know that you're going to bring things to light in our own hearts that we're not even aware of. Sins that, that we're committing that we're not even aware of. But we thank you that, that our salvation, that your mercy toward us doesn't depend on the perfection of our repentance. It doesn't depend on our, our own rooting the sin out of our lives. We trust you to do that, and we trust you that that Jesus has done that for us on the cross. He's taken whatever punishment we deserve, whether for sins that we know about or sins that we don't know about. So we pray that you'd open our eyes to that by your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we enter into a time of response, I asked a whole bunch of questions there at the end. Are you digesting God's word like you should? Are you grieving over your sins? Are you sharing God's word with others? Whatever the Lord is working on your heart to do, why not start now? Why not pray, Lord, break me over my sins. Show me areas in which I haven't been obedient. Show me areas that I don't have a clue about in my heart so that I can love you more. Why not start that prayer now? Pray about who you can share God's word with this week. This week. Why wait? Today. Who can you share God's word with? Things to consider as we enter a time of response this morning. Let's stand and sing together. I can hear my Savior calling, I can hear my Savior calling, I can hear my Savior calling, take thy cross and follow, follow me, where he leads me
service for our brother Bill Clow will be this afternoon at 2 o'clock here at the church and then graveside to follow. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that that would be true of us, what we just sang, that where you lead, we'll follow. And we know that that looks differently for each of our lives as we go our separate directions, go to our different jobs. But I pray that the same would be true of all of us, that wherever you're leading us in our various settings, that we would follow. Use your spirit to guide us and help us to be sensitive to his leading. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.